0: Hi, I'm Alex Buffman with Below the Radar, and you're listening to The Power of Disability with your host, community organizer, social entrepreneur, and author, Aled Mansky. This is a six-part series of the Below the Radar podcast. The Power of Disability features interviews with special guests centering and celebrating the contributions of people with disabilities.
1: Hello, welcome to the Power of Disability podcast. I'm Alec Mansky, and this is a six-part series highlighting what history has overlooked, the contributions of people with disabilities. Today's Power of Disability guests are Penny Perry and Tim Lewis. Penny and Tim, welcome.
0: Well, welcome to you, was a real fun year and trend center in the uh, disability
1: movement. We're honored to be your guests tonight. I'm looking forward to our conversation, but I want to kind of attempt to summarize who you are and what you've done, and then you can correct me after. How does that sound? Sounds good. Okay. So, Tim, you're a lawyer. You were a politician. I'm assuming you still have that political instinct in you. You're an advocate, a blogger, somebody who has led the disability movement in British Columbia and beyond for an awfully long time. While you were a law student, you co-founded Handy Dart, the very beginnings of accessible transportation. You chaired the public library board. You were a parks board commissioner. You were a city councillor for two terms. While there, you were key in developing and implementing a Vancouver Food Policy Council and Vancouver's ethical purchasing policy. You also found time, as I mentioned, to Continue a law career. You served on the board of Van City Credit Union, and you from time to time showed up at gatherings with a Che Guevara t shirt. <laughs> Penny, university professor, psychologist, mm-hmm. youth care practitioner, mm-hmm. artist, multiple mm-hmm. artists, short story writer,
2: mm-hmm.
1: photographer. Yeah. And I don't think this shows up in your bio, but I associate this with artistry as well. But you're a fantastic cook. Thank you. You served as the child and youth advocate for the city of Vancouver for four years in the 90s. That was a pretty pioneering position. I think you were the second Mm -hmm. person to occupy that role. Yes. And you received many, many, many awards for your work, and you are still actively involved in social policy work. You and I end up being at the same conferences, and there you are, still involved, still engaged. So welcome. Welcome, Penny. Welcome, Tim. Welcome, Tim. Welcome. Hey, so you've heard me describe you. I don't know how adequate you saw that. But if I was to ask you out of the blue, who is Penny Perry as a human being, how would you describe yourself? Well,
2: the easiest way to describe me is that I own 27 copies of Alice in Wonderland. Because I'm fascinated by curiosity. And so that's how I would describe myself. I always liked Alice in Wonderland because I think there is something to be said for curiosity for its own sake. It's kind of the lifeblood of people. Once you become no longer curious, what's the point? And it's not that it should never be of practical value, but there's also something just to saying, I don't. I think I've seen white rabbits do that that often and then just go. Away. So I think that's sort of what characterizes the center of me. That's due to the fact that when I was like an infant, I think my mother told me that. She said, Bill, you have to get her a storybook book to like read to her at night. My father came back with the adult version that, you know, that most little infants would not really appreciate. But I still have that book. So it became very much second nature to me. The other thing about me, I think, is I am very dogged in my pursuits. So if I want to do something, and sometimes this drives my partner, Tim, crazy because he said, okay, this, we have to get to A to B, let's just do it. And I'm going, I don't quite understand about A and B, and I really need to think about it first. And so my style is slightly different, which makes it good. We get along well unless we're ready to kill each other. Well, we get along well, because so we have very complementary styles. So my style is more lateral thinking and that kind of thing. And I love being with people, despite the fact that I can abuse myself forever. But I absolutely just am fascinated by everybody.
1: So you're curiouser and curiouser and curiouser.
2: <laughs> I am totally. And I mean, I end up at, in the morning, I'm reading a couple of stories that I'll say to Tim, do you know that when dentures were first invented, first they were invented because trying to mimic nature? And then somebody said, this is okay, but we really need to know about the mechanic to this. I'm sure Tim's mother would say, what are you going to do with that information? And I would say, nothing. I just think it's really interesting.
1: (laughs) Tim, there's probably been more articles written about you than Penny, although it's probably more journal articles written about Penny or by Penny. But because you've been that much more of a public figure, there's many perceptions of you out there. How would you describe yourself as a human being?
2: Well,
0: that's a great question. Off the top of my head, I would say that I have many parts. One part of me is perhaps a Freddy's partner. She's an incredibly wise
1: individual,
0: and many people have witnessed me in the political arena. Attribute my positions and my articulation of those positions to me. Because so the reality is that Crane has been my political compass for four years. We talked about so many world issues and ethical issues and sometimes we agree and sometimes we don't agree. Really we watched a movie the other night one night in Miami and that they totally disagreed. I was all in support of Malcolm X and she was all in support of somebody else, the terms of the disagree. So that's one part. Another part is lawyer. Carrie Rankin, your listeners may not know of him. He was an incredible man. He shaped my politics. He was my mentor, but he was also responsible for the fact that I am a lawyer. I really enjoy law when I'm able to act for somebody that would not have representation otherwise, and I get a great deal of pleasure of the cases that I've had over the years, and that gives me a lot of enjoyment in life. I am for a past politician sitting on city council okay. and doing my best to be firm and to be assertive and to be outspoken on my belief system, gave me a lot of pleasure. I guess maybe, I'm not sure if it's the last or not, but a social activist, mm-hmm. I continue to be very interested in world issues, the plight of the Palestinians in the Middle East, and so by the way, so happy yesterday, a big victory, and the International Criminal Court have made a breathtaking decision that they do have jurisdiction over the uh, Palestinian territories in spite of the uh, apoplectic opposition as a part of the apartheid state. Otherwise known as Israel, and in global warming and on the criminal, a very barbaric economic blockade of the world's last remaining yeah. true socialist state, Cuba, and so on many different parts. At different points of the day, I'm one of those parts.
2: Mm -hmm. And I think in your many parts, in listening to you, I was reminded that we're like the yin and the yang, and that Tim is, and correct me if I'm not saying this correctly, you're more bound to see the, oh God, look at the mess we're in. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, messes happen, and... My danger is that I could become Pollyanna.
0: Your danger is that you could become a French poet. Absolutely. Although I will say that lately I'm very happy, yes. very optimistic um, about the current president yeah. who comes from the corporate wing of the Democratic Party, and the wing that it is beholden to the pharmaceutical mm-hmm. industry and the arms munitions and the uh, privatized healthcare, health care, and yet he's wowed me and others in the progressive movement when he's done in the last not to worry to wait for holding our rest but he may turn out to be one of the more progressive presidents ever in the history of the state. So maybe there is hope. Maybe there is hope.
1: I want to talk about this question of mentorship, actually, with both of you maybe just to continue the conversation with you, Tim, for a bit longer, but you described Harry Rankin as your mentor. Did you get into law school because of him, or did he mentor you into your style of lawyering? Because I know you articled with people other than Harry. So maybe could you describe a little bit about the legendary Harry Rankin, who I think many of our listeners would know of if they're from Vancouver. If they're not, then... They need to know that he was both a radical politician. I think at one point he was self-avowed communist, who was also extremely influential in terms of keeping the city of Vancouver's budget under control. He was a prudent fiscal politician as well, and took on any challenge that the underdog in British Columbia faced for 30, 40 years. I don't know if you agree with that assessment, but you ended up somehow articling with him. and You consider him your mentor. Why?
0: Well, of course, you know, I don't need to tell you that we could do not one, but mm-hmm. perhaps 10 podcasts just on Harry weight, and we don't have time today to talk into that much detail. You say he was, at one point in time, a communist throughout almost all of his entire life. He was a communist in every manner, except for the fact he never did take out a membership when he was in law school at UBC, but the law society was prohibiting any graduate of the law school that was affiliated with the Communist Party from becoming a lawyer. And so Harry never did take over the membership. Harry ran for city council 13 times before he got elected. Oh my goodness, that's determination. He was declared elected on his 12th drive, went to bed with a big, big smile on his face. In the middle of the night, they found the pull box in Point Gray, a conservative area, and in the middle of the night, he slipped from just barely elected to render up. Harry Reagan was my mentor long before law school, to answer your question. He politicized me when I was mm-hmm. lobbying for better transportation for folks who needed to it her at city hall, he could take out the entire rest of council and still out-debate them and force them to vote in favor of better transit for us. He wrote the letter that got me into law school. Then you said that, well, I'm just paraphrasing here, you understood that I did not article for him the entire time. You're right. I heard it go for a fellow, I don't want to name him, he's no longer with us, he's passed away, but he was totally, totally, totally impractical. He had me Mm -hmm. doing research, which is the most impractical thing to ask me to do because of my limited function. He had me camp out at the law library in the courthouse. I would stand in line, eventually get to the front of the librarian, I would very kindly take a book off whatever shelf I could reach, reached or put it to the page I needed. I would read it two seconds later because the was on the page. I had to get it as a book. I'll be back to the back of the lineup. Long story short, in eight hours, I produced absolutely nothing. And he fired me after three months. Harry picked me up right away. And I knew we are getting too much into Harry here. Harry happened to do criminal law. Where you have to think on your mm-hmm. feet. And during lunch hour he would race into my office, he would toss a file out to my desk. And halfway down the hallway, as he was departing, I would yell out in desperation, Carrie, when is the trial? <laughs> and just as he would turn to the corner to disappear, he would pick his arm up, look at his wristwatch and mark back to me in about 90 minutes. <laughs> and that's my I would. I do to think of my feet. Yes. He was an amazing human being, and we can talk, as I mentioned a moment ago, for ten podcasts about Harry. But he politicized me, but he also taught me how to practice law: cut to the chase, be practical, don't charge people a fee mm-hmm. for nothing right. if you're not giving them something of substance, and you're just giving them fluff, so they don't deserve to be turned. Harry taught me discipline. He taught me determination. He taught me selflessness. He taught me altruism, and so on and so on.
1: Thank you for that dive back into history. I do want to talk to you at some point, but maybe when this is over about that expression, think on your feet. You think very quickly, but you think on your tires maybe more than your (laughs) feet. Sure. (laughs) Kenny, As I say, you and I, our lives intersect via the conference or workshop venues that we used to attend. And in the room, there's always seems to be people who are gathering around you. And so I want to talk about this question of mentorship as well. And one of the, Most influential people in British Columbia now, one of the most influential public servants is Jennifer Charlesworth, who's the representative for children and youth. And without hesitation, she credits you for getting her into this field way back when and meeting you when you were a lecturer at the University of Victoria. Do you remember that? And do you see yourself as a mentor? I know when I hear you talk sometimes, I think you actually want to make it very, very clear you're a colleague and you're very collegial about it. But Can you talk a little bit about that? Because Jennifer must not be the only person like that. And there are people who really do count you as a primary influence in their life.
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's the way to frame it, that many people end up, by circumstance, by chance, being in the right place at the right moment for another person. And I distinctly remember Jennifer, because she was incredible from the very moment go. She hadn't finished high school, then finished high school on her own, then went on a sailing trip to Maui, I think or somewhere. And she was like, I don't know exactly what I want to do with my life. And I thought, it won't matter. You're brilliant. And the fact that you're questioning is great. And I just remember being absolutely, incredibly struck by her. But also, she caught me at a time when I had absolute commitment to child and youth care as a practical front-line opportunity for people to influence, as with all respect to my degrees in psychology, but a psychologist doesn't get to have breakfast with kids. A psychologist doesn't wander in when kids are at their best, at their worst, at their whatever. And so child and youth care workers actually get to do that. They see people in their everyday lives. And so I think I must have gone on this little rant about if you're going to do anything, do something real and hear something real. <laughs> That's what I remember. Maybe that wasn't what I said, but that was where I was at that moment. In listening to Tim, he has got one person who stands out. And I can't say for myself that one person stood out as a mentor for me. What I can say, though, there was always someone there at the right time apparently on the same vein as myself when I needed to hear whatever I needed to hear. So that's my idea of mentoring as an alternative style of mentoring, Mm -hmm. that you happen to be there. And it's very much part of the literature on resiliency, which says that resilience is not about sort of you do it on your own and you can back up and fight anything. Mm -hmm. It has a number of factors in it, one of which is that the right person is there at the right time, and unbeknownst to them, has an incredible impact on you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's an alternative model of of mentoring. And I'm always very surprised when people say, but you had such an impact, because I think, I remember you, you were great. But I don't, (laughs) I mean, the light did not shine, the trumpets didn't go off. And I I just felt I was lucky in meeting incredible people with incredible
1: potential. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I mean, for your conceptualization of mentorship, I'm wondering about that in the context of your artistry. I mean, this is a whole other side of you that emerged in my, you know, awareness much later in my relationship with you. I mean, are there signposts around, along the way? Are there people along the way that you met who encouraged that side of your life? I mean, you you went into it. Pretty well, full time there for
2: Yeah, I woke up one morning and, for time, and it was about six o'clock in the morning and said to him, I'm going to art school. He said, Oh, okay. I don't think I realized it. And then he put me through art school, which is great. One of the things about us is at any one point in time, one of us has been earning money and the other has been either a student or whatever. So whoever's got the money pays the bills, kind of thing. Which, so, right. Yeah. And, uh, but Getting back to the mentorship thing and people that were there. I mean, on the one hand, oddly enough, when I think back on me as a little kid, there were many, many messages, optimal moments where my mother would say these little things like when I to come home and say, we're getting a new car, we're getting a new car. I'd give out five or six. She would say, Penny, do you know what the best thing is about getting a new car? And I would go, the color? No, no, the colors good, but not the color. It's going kind to of drive fast. And that's good too, but that's not of The best thing about having a new car, a car of our own, we can give other people rides. So that's like a third model of mentorship. And the things that you think, huh, you know, that wasn't that important, but it was incredibly important. If you look at my choice of careers, and I realize you had moved into art. I have to say that right now I'm working on something that, I, and I I've always had an undercurrent, I think. Art is an expression to share with other people of something we've learned or to provoke others into learning. So that's how the art part of me, maybe by fluke, ends up being that alternate mentor to someone. They kind of look at the company and go, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Or, mm-hmm. and that's all I'm meaning to do is people have it in themselves. I
1: don't
2: know if that answers it.
1: So are you saying that for you, art is actually a form of mentorship, of helping people? Yeah, Yeah.
2: influencing people at the right moment. And, you know, you see people come up at times and say, oh, i really never blah, 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 blah. And you think, gee, I've, I've never thought of you being surprised at what you're telling me you're surprised at, you know, but way to go. And... So yeah, for me, as I say, mentorship, I really think we were very lucky, to have Harry because I think that's a really incredible model. And I wanted to say that, again, I was brought up in Quebec in the era of Duplessis and all of that stuff. So the politics of things and voting was like, you voted for whoever the priest told you to vote for. The man of the house did it. The wife voted as the husband did it. So I didn't have a lot of exposure to... I'll say formal politics. So, Tim, one of the things you have mentored me on is more of a of a real understanding of uh, some of the aspects of politics, which I would have known as just downright good philosophy or what a person ought to do anyway. But I never knew it was embodied in who gets elected or how you can make a policy to actually make these things happen. So. Mm.
1: So Tim and Penny, I wanted to turn for a while just to the issues associated with people with disabilities. And uh, Tim, in your Wikipedia, I don't know if you wrote it or if you had somebody write it or somebody wrote it and whether you've looked at it or not, but there's no mention of your advocacy in the disability world. And a lot of your bios omit you know, that part of your life. So I guess, is that a conscious choice? Was it a conscious choice? Do you have an ambivalent relationship with that part of yourself? I'm just wondering if you have any reflections or thoughts on that.
0: Well, I did not write the uh, page of Orgham anyway to write it for me. You asked a very good question. In my mind, it's always a fine line between uh, identifying as quote-unquote disabled and then being given perhaps a rape or a whatever that you wouldn't get otherwise, and not doing that. In my politics, I was always very determined to speak to the issues that were of concern to me. I'm not sure that I'm being fair here, but let me just say, quote-unquote, playing the disability code. And I'm not really sure where that takes us, but at the risk of being a bit too long-winded, let me go way back to when I moved out of home, I was eligible for what we now call PWD, person with disability. And I was eligible for all my tuition to be paid for, yada, yada, yada. And I said, no, if an able-bodied person is not entitled to uh, free tuition. If they're not entitled to income assistance when they're a student, I'm going to take right. out uh, student loans and go into debt just like everybody else. But, and guess what? Any expense I incur that's unique to my disability, and you, and you being meeting the state, you will pay for it whether you like it or not whether there's a program for it or not. So let's start with my attended care. There is no program for intended care, but guess what? Uh, You're paying for it. When I moved into a house on 8th Avenue, I needed a little elevator at the back of the house. And I simply ordered the elevator. It was installed, and I told my then social worker, you are going to pay for it. You just about fainted that. That right, to like the ghost. Mm-hmm. Tim, but you know that's not the appropriate process. You're supposed to make the application that I mm-hmm. review it. It goes up the chain. Eventually, it goes to Victoria. They so have a special division for those types of requests. And eventually, you get this. An so, Well, where am I to live? In the meantime, I'm renting a house. You're going to live in the garage. So you will pay for it. And so I probably wondering a bit from your question. I've never considered myself to be truly quote disabled, but uh, I'm not sure what that means.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you share that perspective? Of that, Tim just spoke of Penny and the line he draws. Is that shifted or changed for you?
2: No, I think the line for me, although I would frame it different, not frame it differently, but um, I have always taken the perspective ever since I was a little girl, I think that there's a continuum of apples, a continuum of people, there's a continuum people, some people are tall, some people are short, some people are heavy, some people are thin, some people are whistling, bright, some people are not so fast at certain things, but they're good with their hands, the other people aren't, and so that we're in a world of difference and that what happens whether we, And that's why for years, and I still don't like the term special needs, because I argued for years, everybody has the same basic needs. Somebody might need some help to get those needs met, but nobody's got special needs because once you do that, you're not equal. And I've seen, I think this builds on what Tim was saying, it's a fine balance because it's important when your child, and I've worked for years with kids and families, but I would say that what children and adults and adolescents, what human beings want to be is not exactly like everybody else, but to be treated like everybody else. And so that's what I fully really agree that unfortunately sometimes people think, well, I'm special, so I get on. That becomes their identity. And what they don't realize is if you overdo that, you're not being treated equally. People don't give you a good run for your money in the debate because they, oh, it's not fair to do that to that person. That's not equal. That's not respect. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I think we're both of one mind on that delicate thing. It's not to deny the difference or deny that you might need another way of reaching your need. Mm -hmm. But... The needs are all the same and the people
1: are all the same. When I was researching my book, I started to pick up on what people are now calling disability pride, you know, the assertion that we lead with our disability and the person is second. So, that just in terms of nomenclature, you know, is a shift from the way I had been schooled or or trained. But also, I'm sensing in that pride, anger, rising anger, mounting anger. I feel it in Canada, feistiness you know, sense they're no longer willing to put up with the way people with disabilities are being treated, a feeling of, to some extent, of betrayal by the social justice movement that the systemic discrimination against disabled people doesn't show up on anybody's, you know, radar compared to other issues. And it's not a question of competition, but just a question of lack of acknowledgement. So I mean, you both have been involved in the movement. For a long time are observers, you know, initiators and whatever. Do you see this as a modern version of, you know, what might have gotten you into this in the first place? Or do you see differences? Is there something different that's emerging now that you don't relate to, for example? I'm just curious what you think about this changing nature of disability, the changing narrative of disability.
0: I'm not sure that I'm addressing this last question of yours, but uh, at the risk of being off point a little bit, and I may be misinterpreting the women's movement, which I'm a very strong supporter, a very strong supporter of the women's movement, But women would not consider themselves to be weaker than men, or vulnerable than men, or more fragile than men, or less capable of standing up for themselves than men, and Again, there may be a point here, but the Metro Vancouver Alliance holds so a really incredible event and election to at the Italian Cultural Center. And another person who wrote there with a disability insisted that in order to, quote, unquote, accommodate anyone with a disability, there had to be people at all the doors of the Italian Cultural Center to open up the door walk them all the way to their seat. And all of a sudden the person with a disability was being treated mm-hmm. like a fragile ornament. and trying to think of if it a woman having the door open for them, a woman being led to their seats in the auditorium, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, they would say get lost. I'm not uh, I'm not fragile. So I was actually quite offended by that. I got into a very beautiful Philosophical discussion with the executive director of the Metro Vancouver Alliance. How do we properly accommodate mm-hmm. disabled people attending to that event? And well, there's a line, I don't know where you draw it, between accommodation on the one hand and something beyond accommodation, which reinforces as a concept that people with disabilities are less resilient mm-hmm. and less hardy, et cetera, etc. etc. And now I'm way off your point, but I just have to say this. Sometimes it's been said that if a woman is assertive, it's misconstrued as yes, yes. being difficult or being aggressive. Yeah. And I've often wondered whether or not if a person with a disability is assertive And puts their foot down, whether or not it's considered inappropriate for that disabled person to be assertive and to be outspoken. Mm -hmm. But to come back to your question, yes, there is a disability culture, just like there is a perhaps a black culture. But there's a fine line. Sometimes I regret to say, sometimes it's used to create too much of something. Yeah. So, like my previous answer to your question a moment ago, I know not should not say for a moment that there should not be a unique support mm. for people that have special needs. Of course, there should be, but let's not mollycoddle and let's not turn the person inadvertently into a child, a passive childlike individual. Let's not do that by mistake.
2: Right. And I think just to pick up on that, when you said, let's not turn the person into a chump, there's still, and I'm always gumsmacked by it, go to a restaurant and the person will say, and what do you think you would like to drink? And I say, I have no idea. Why don't you ask them?" right? And it's not a bad person saying that, but the assumption is. So part of the balance between recognizing and. That some accommodation is needed also has to be balanced with why you think that and what assumptions. So, if somebody says, Hey, there's a woman with a stroller and a kid, can somebody help her lift the stroller? It's not because we think she's unable or because she would never think of that. None of those assumptions are there. It's just like, Yeah, let me hear it. Can I help you? And I guess, again, for me, it comes back to the way we treat each other. If we just say, oh, can I get that for you? Not because I think you're about to fall over or, you know, whatever, but can I help you as I would help somebody else?
1: So Penny and Tim, we're coming to the end of our discussion. And I was going to ask you a lot of questions about the two of you as a couple, but I think our listeners, or I encourage you to actually watch this as well, would be picking up the answers to those questions just by the interaction between the two of you over the last 40 minutes or so. But I know, I don't think it's a secret, but I know you're coming up to the 40th anniversary of you being together. So maybe the last question is from each of you. What's the secret of a lengthy romance?
0: Well, I think I would say I've learned from Penny that you have to be flexible and accommodating. And she's been incredibly flexible and accommodating with me in her early years. I was hardly ever home or to meeting take one night to another and working till late in the evening? And she was very understanding of that. I'm not going to get the right to spread. I don't mean that somebody totally... A little out. woman in yeah, yeah,
2: was yeah. hardly there. Yeah,
0: no, 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 no. But uh, yeah, I guess that's part of the secret to a long relationship. And yeah. being able to have great discussions is very important discussions that are substantive enough to come up with uh, some silly sitcom that you probably shouldn't waste your time watching in the first place, might alone talking about it. But what is binding up to it's really it? Is he really get progressive? And how do we get the embargo of Cuba lifted It so on and so on? Have meaningful discussions that we have peppered throughout the day every day that gives meaning to life and to get involved in causes in partnership together, and finding out the same trust. That's an element to a two-a-line relationship.
2: Well, I thought what Tim was going to say was, when we first got together, he said, okay, well, we'll get together, but it's on one understanding. All the important decisions, this may I make, that's Tim makes, and any of the rest you can make. The unimportant. The unimportant decisions. to make. And then he says, and you know what? In 40 years, there's never been an important decision.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just want to thank you both for this. It's been a real treat for me. I've been looking forward to this. I hope we've shared with our listeners and those who are watching this parts of your life that people may not have known along with the things that they've known. In that regard, we'll have links to your work on the SFU website including, Tim, your regular blog. So we'll make sure all of that's on there for people to follow up. So thank you both for joining us today. If you want to read more about The Power of Disability, I encourage you to check out my website. The links are on the podcast as well. Or check out my latest book, The Power of Disability.
2: And it's wonderful. Everyone in there is very
1: powerful. All right. Thank you. Well, I won't say more than that. Check it out. And until the next time, bye for now. Thank you. Take
2: care. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: This has
0: been part five of The Power of Disability, a special six-part series of the Blow the Radar podcast. Check back next Thursday for the sixth installment. This series is curated and hosted by the community organizer, social entrepreneur, and author, Alec Matsky. Theme music for The Power of Disability is There Is Nothing Wrong With Me, at Epilepsy by Todd Osecki. The production of this series is supported by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Disease,